The time is now. Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my mind. Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my Volume 7, Episode 125, This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of the podcast and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. It is February 1st, 2023, my sixth year anniversary doing this podcast. It is hard to believe it's been six years. My very first episode was February 1st, 2017. In those six years, we've had more to talk about than even I could have imagined. All of the labor and employment trends and developments, the president administration changes, a global pandemic, legislative enactments, agency rules, significant court precedents. Of course, we've had guests from the government and public sector, from the private corporate sector, and of course, some real special people from my firm here at Cozen O'Connor. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't be able to do any of this if all of you didn't have at least some interest in listening to me. And for that, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate for the past six years, all of you listening to some episodes of this Employment Law Now podcast. I appreciate all of the great and constructive feedback and criticism and comments and suggestions that I've gotten over the years. Again, I never would have been able to do this if I didn't have people who wanted to listen to some of it. So thank you so much. And as we start the next year of Employment Law Now, I promise to give it my all in trying to duplicate what I've been doing and even make it a little bit better. To try to keep you updated on labor and employment trends and developments and bring in some special and interesting people to help break down the stories of the day. With that said, for those of you who have been listening regularly, you know that my anniversary podcast episode each year is a very special one. My very first guest back on February 1st, 2017 was my great colleague and friend here at Cozen O'Connor, Howard Schweitzer, who talked back then about all things politics. Howard is a DC insider, so to speak, and he is with our Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. So from that very first episode, each February 1st after that, he has come on to help celebrate the anniversary and talk to us about what's going on in the world of politics and why it matters to employers and businesses and what the impact may be going forward. And Howard was gracious enough to come back on today to celebrate today's really fun anniversary. So I've got Howard here and we're going to talk about what's going on in D.C. and a little bit about what's going on in politics on the state and local levels. We'll get into some of the processes some of the substantive issues that we've been talking a lot about, including the FTC rule on the non-compete ban. And I'll get him to do a little bit of prognostication. Will President Biden run for re-election? Will we see a President Biden versus Donald Trump rematch? And what about some of the other stories, George Santos and some other things coming out of Congress? 
What do we expect to see in 2023 and beyond? For that, I've got Howard Schweitzer to help break it down for us. Howard, good to uh, good to see you. Thank you so much for uh, for getting back with us. Mike, thanks for having me. It's always good to be back for the anniversary edition of the Mike Schmidt podcast. Well, you know, I was, and it's funny because uh, there are people who have asked me, you know, why don't you just call it the Mike Schmidt podcast? And I like to say, you know, it's not just about me, Howard. It's about employment law and, you know, employers, employees. So employment law now, I think, worked a lot better than the Mike Schmidt podcast. I, I, I don't know. You do share a name with somebody rather famous. So that, that could work for you, too. Well, maybe just in Philadelphia, though. I don't, <laughs> know, about, I don't know if the rest of the world cares about uh, the baseball player. I, I, Mike, I think I thought everything here revolves around Philadelphia now. <laughs> That's true. And uh, look at these little side discussions we're having about uh, our firm, Cozen O'Connor. Uh, but, Howard, I appreciate you uh, you coming on. As you said, you know, we love to have you every year on our anniversary. This is our sixth anniversary. Um, it's hard to believe another year has passed. Uh, I don't want our listeners to think that you and I only talk on February 1st each year. Uh, we are, uh, at least I'll speak for myself, we're, we're good friends, good colleagues here at the firm. 100%. And, yeah, and kidding aside, I really appreciate you coming on here. Before we get to some of the issues, and there are a lot of them, uh, why don't you remind the listeners again about what your practice is here at Cozen, the kind of things you do in the political and public policy space? Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Mike. So I run Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, which is a federal, state, and local government affairs or lobbying practice. We've got folks in Washington, which is where I sit, and then your your home state, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Minnesota, um, and and beyond. And um, you know, we've got reach all over the country. Um, very strong practice in Washington. We just added to our team in Washington and Illinois, former United States Congressman Rodney Davis from Southern Illinois, huge addition to our team. And we're super excited about that. So we're growing and able to help clients all over the country. That's terrific. Um, yeah, the team is growing and it is a great team. So let's let's start right away with some big picture takeaways before I get into some specifics and some of the sure. weeds. We are halfway, of course, through the first term of the Biden administration. Are we where you thought we would be at this point in his term? Well, look, I think the world continues to present its challenges like Russia, Ukraine. Who thought we were going to be dealing with a protracted combat situation on the European continent? Uh, you know, I, I, you can't forecast that. and. Look, I think he's done a reasonable job. He's overperformed expectations, in my opinion. And I've worked, as you know, for both Republicans and Democrats. So I'm as kind of middle of the road as, as you get. Um, I Look, I, I think we just came through the 2022 midterms and he dramatically exceeded expectations relative to other presidents in their first midterm election. And so... I think I think he's performing uh, better than expected. It's an expectations game, and I think he's beating them. 
Well, and you just mentioned the term, you know, divided. And and I know a lot of what you've put out on your own podcast, and I'll get to that plug later, uh, as well as some of the alerts you've been sending out from your group is this notion of divided government. And to a lot yep. of people, uh, it does feel like it has been divided government for a long time. Should we expect the same? Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? Listen, I, um, we have, it's a function of where the country is. And we have a very closely divided country um, as reflected in Washington, the makeup of, of Washington. And yeah, we've had unified government and divided government and unified government and divided government and Congress flips back and forth. I mean, we're coming off of a Congress in which Nancy Pelosi was governing with the thinnest of majorities. And we had a 50, 50 Senate to a Congress where one additional Democrat in the Senate, but 51-49, and where Kevin McCarthy is governing with the thinnest of majorities. So we are definitely ping-ponging back and forth. Frankly, I I don't think it's been that bad for business. I think it's exhausting for everybody to feel like they're constantly ping-ponging back and forth between particularly folks on the extremes. But if you look out at the last, look back at the last six years, kind of from Trump through where we find ourselves today, we've had major tax reform that's been good for business. We've had major infrastructure legislation to revamp the nation's infrastructure. We have an industrial policy that we've never had before or haven't had in a very long time. Um, We have had numerous COVID relief packages that were done on a bipartisan basis. So it's painful, but I don't think it's necessarily bad for business. And um, I think it elevates the voice of moderates in Washington, though they are fewer and fewer. As a result, they're more and more powerful. So it's a little bit of a counter narrative. Um, I think to just take that one step further, on the state and local level, that's where there isn't divided government. And as a result, you've got very progressive labor and employment activity in particular um, in blue areas across the country, which is where the vast majority of the country's GDP comes from. So I, I think in some ways the divided government is much better for business than, than anything. Well, and, you know, it's in one respect is is divided. In another respect, I think there's this perception that nothing substantive is happening. You know, I I think we're hearing more out of Congress lately about, for example, George Santos and what's going on, you know, what's going on with that. Then we are real substantive legislation that can help businesses and and even workers. You know, is that going to change on the federal level? Yeah, look, I think there's going to be in the next couple of years a lot of, first of all, there's going to be a lot of administration activity Um, without control of Congress. You know, there's a limit to, there's a limit to how much legislation can be enacted, though there will certainly be some, and it will certainly be substantive. On the flip side, I think in the administration, they have regulatory power and they're going to use it. Biden's only going to be able to go so far because he needs position he needs position himself for re-election, but and I do think he's running, but uh, they have serious regulatory power and they're going to use it. 
Well, so what should we make of the midterm election results? Yeah. Now we're a couple of months in there. We've uh, had an opportunity to digest that. It changed things a, a little bit, I guess. But what, what do we make of the results and, and this new Congress that's uh, just starting? Yeah, I think, look, on the left and on the right, and when I say this, I mean the far left and the far right, what's motivating what I broadly will label populism, and it's populism on both sides of the aisle. I think hyper-progressivism is populism. And on the far right, it's populism and Trumpism is populism. I think what's motivating people on the extremes is, um, you know, the desire to have um, attention, the desire to appeal to the to the masses. And it's anti-institutionalism and and kind of tearing down and upsetting the apple cart on all kinds of institutions in society, the media, government, interestingly, a little less so business. Um, uh, and I, I think um, that's what to expect out of out of those extremes. I think that the, the vote in the midterms was a vote in favor of government governing and kind of calm and a little bit of a return to normalcy. I mean, the, the the crazy candidates that lost, lost for a reason, and they lost because they were too extreme. And, and so I think the midterms were a good referendum on where the country wants, the, the country wants like calm and order. And something else that was a must-see TV for a while was whether Kevin McCarthy would uh, finally be elected internally as uh, the Speaker of the House. Why was that so important, and why have we never seen something like that before? Well, we we haven't, but the country has. Um, I mean, there have been long Speaker battles in throughout the history of this country. It's just been a while. Um, it was important for the what I was just talking about, it's, you know, the far right was trying to hold hostage the institution and trying to disrupt the orderly operation of the institution. They, they don't, they didn't care so much about Kevin McCarthy versus someone else. It's a little bit of a burn it down mentality. And at the end of the day, they got in line and McCarthy got his, got his speakership and it, I mean, I think, look, it was it was more of that kind of burn it down mentality. And so it was very important to come out of that in a better place. Better place in terms of what? Do you think the, the Republican Party is uh, in a better place because of that drawn out process? I think you could make the argument that um, because he was able to come out of it after all those battles that yeah, that he may be in a little bit of a better place. I could argue both. I could argue both sides of that. Um, but I, I think better place because it's the country's being governed. And frankly, like some of what the far right wanted in that whole battle was a little bit. It's it's kind of it's a little oxymoron ish because it's like. Um, they wanted it was anti-institutionalism that was motivating them. But some of the reforms that they sought at the same time were reforms that returned the House to kind of governing as it used to, where every member had a, vo had a voice and could offer amendments. And, 
it, and some of the some of what they were seeking, half of what they were seeking was nuts. Half of what they were seeking is probably pretty positive as far as the operation of the institution is concerned. I don't think they realize that. I'm not sure they still realize it, but uh, even now, but I think um, some of what came out of it is good for governing in, in the ordinary course. And that's good for the country. No, that definitely makes sense. Uh, let's talk, Howard, about some substantive issues here. We all know what the FTC uh, on the federal level proposed in terms of, I think, a fairly radical, at least on the federal level, again, uh, a radical prohibition of virtually all non-compete agreements. Uh, yeah. We've been talking about it on this podcast. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about it. We are obviously right now in the public comment period, and yep. we know the makeup of the Supreme Court if the uh, issue ever gets there. Uh, are you hearing anything uh, in terms of whether the FTC rule survives or not, whether in its original form or some watered-down version? Well, I'm hearing a lot of business opposition to FTC overreach, which is is nothing new and is needed. Business needs to oppose regulatory overreach. Um, you know, I don't. I think probably at the end of the day, it doesn't pass muster in court. Um, but in some ways, I don't think it matters because what's happening is they're the feds are playing a game where they're giving cover to state and local government to come in and enact their own prohibitions. And that's already happening. It's been happening. It will continue to happen. And I think particularly as it relates to labor and employment policy, that's a lot of what's going on, kind of using Washington as a megaphone to give cover to folks down at state government to go and do the 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 real work of enacting prohibitions yeah i share the pessimism uh as to whether the ftc rule will ever survive yeah um but i think you're right i mean it's certainly bringing the issue to to the forefront and you know 47 48 of the states currently have some sort of legislation out there uh certainly not all of them outright banning non-competes like a california and some other places right um, but they are and that's the trend i think imposing more restrictions uh, on the types of circumstances and the type of employees that yeah. you can have subject to a non-compete agreement yeah and look you have to go communicate with people that are legislating in this area. You have to talk to them. You have to engage with them and explain, look, not every company has the resources to, to do this, but the trade associations are, are in there. And if it really matters, you gotta, you gotta create an opportunity to have a conversation, make sure people understand the nuance. It's not, it, we talk about it in big macro terms, but there are the devils in the details and you have to educate people and don't assume that they understand what's what the kind of guardrails are that they should be operating between. You have to go educate them and and show them why they should care about these issues. And I would just to take that one step further, Mike, what I what I'm telling clients is you have to go talk to those moderate members of Congress I was talking about earlier or your state legislature or your city government, depending upon what the issue is. You look like in Washington right now, the um, Republicans won 
uh, I think, 18 seats in districts that uh, Biden won in 2020. Um, you, you have to, like, that's elections are won or lost in these moderate swing districts. And so if you're a Democrat in Congress right now, and you represent one of those moderate swing districts, you're vulnerable. And those are the people that at the end of the day are most likely to influence, I think, the Biden administration on something like this, because they're the ones hanging in the balance, which doesn't mean the Biden administration is going to always do their bidding. But if I were going to go into Congress and advocate on this issue as a client, those are the people I'd be talking to. It's those like the Republicans are all going to say it's FTC overreach. The far left is all going to say this is great. It's those moderate Democrats um, in vulnerable seats that you, where you should be focusing your effort and asking them to weigh in with the administration. That's how you that's how you push back. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and I'm assuming you're involved uh, talking with clients uh, about these issues, whether it's Congress um, or otherwise. And, you know, does it make more sense to be going directly to Congress as opposed to commenting through the public comment period to the FTC or are they not mutually exclusive? They're not mutually exclusive. All of the above. Um, all of the above. It's it's this is not an issue where. It's one size fits all. I mean, look, you should, you have to lay your marker with the FTC um, and they have to read the comments, but this is an activist FTC with, with an activist chair. And yeah, you can put your, you can and should, and you need to check the box of putting your comments in, but you have to actually go and engage people in the administration and particularly on Capitol Hill who have the potential to actually influence Lena Khan and folks over there because, because it's, because everything's political. And it goes back a little bit. I mean, even president Obama uh, talked about this call to arms. He was, he was speaking in a lot of respects to the state and local governments, uh, which was, which is a little ironic to me, but you know, the past several years, there had been some talk uh, at Congress about doing something legislatively on the restrictive covenant non-compete issue, but I guess there hasn't been enough um, there hasn't been enough desire to do that. Yeah, and look, the republic on the Republican side, it's no longer the party of like the the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and corporate America. I mean, it has definitely shifted right, but I still think getting. The getting Republicans, getting Senate Republicans to support something that is deemed to be far left from a business point of view, like on, something that involves agency overreach, it's it's never going to happen. Or, or what's viewed as what could be characterized as characterized as regulatory overreach, notwithstanding the populism I I talked about earlier. So I think it's a tough lift congressionally. I just think it'd be hard to get that kind of thing done legislatively. Um, and that's why they're going the executive path on the states. As I said earlier, it's, you know, you've got super majorities in state legislatures and it's, they can enact things legislatively and very little divided government down below. And that's, I think, where you've got to be engaged at the federal level because it sets the tone. And kind of creates the cover 
But I think the rubber hits the road and you see this every day at the state and local level, even more so because of the lack of divided government. Yeah, and look, there's something to be said for trying to make things easier on multi-jurisdictional employers and, hey, let's have a national standard. Let's have a federal standard. On the other hand, there are a handful, at least, of issues that are, you know, the, the state and local governments are better equipped because they may have unique industries in their particular locations that that are affected a different way by something like a non-compete law than some other jurisdiction might be right and look you've got to go in and talk to folks on on the on the state level it's people often assume that folks in government understand their plight and they just don't i mean these are elected members of Congress or state legislatures or city councils, and they've got a million things, you know, coming at them and lots of different issues. And you, you have to take the time and be methodical about it. And, and by the way, it's not just talking to those moderates. I mean, you have to talk to everybody and you can have some, sometimes you can make headway um, with folks on the fringes as well, but it's obviously more difficult. So I don't, I don't have a real creative segue uh, to move to the next topic. So I'll just I'll just get there. Um, I would like to say we're we're finally done talking about COVID and vaccine related rules and legislation, at least on the federal government side. Do you think we are? Well, they declared I think the end of the COVID emergency. Um, I think we are. I think we're going to be doing the pandemic workout for a long time. I mean, in in one form or another, I used to say, as you know, I was at Treasury during the financial crisis in 08, 09. And what I would say is we're in the middle after the the 10 year period after that, we're in like a 10 year workout, political workout. I think in some ways we're still going through working that out from a political point of view. I think on COVID, it's the same thing. I mean, look, Yes, I think COVID is behind us as kind of an independent policy issue. But I think, as you know, I mean, the way people work has fundamentally changed. The I think the it's hard to draw a straight line from the current labor market challenges, the lack of available labor to COVID, but retirements and people you know, getting out of the workforce, dropping out of the workforce certainly created during COVID certainly created some of that. Um, so I, I think we'll be working out COVID. I think the inflation and our, the high interest rates we're dealing with are, are partially stem from what had to be done during COVID or what was done during COVID to, to put money out into the market and make sure that we didn't go over an economic cliff. So I think we'll be dealing with the consequences of COVID from a policy point of view and grappling with them for for some time. And I also think pandemic preparedness and, and how we address the next pandemic um, is, is something government is going to be grappling with as well. Wow, the, the next pandemic. I mean, uh, really? I mean, I hope not, God forbid, but I mean, on the flip side, I feel like the next time there's some strain of something that people here is circulating around China, are we not going to like freak out and lose our minds and government's going to get all spun up and 
Uh, so yeah. I, I think, I think it's, I think it's, how can we be better prepared? Because I think, you know, we government did okay, not great in responding to COVID and everybody knows that. So I'm, I'm going to get to in, in just a minute, some specific prognostication from you and put you on the spot a little bit. Um, but assuming president Biden and Congress can work together for the next two years, uh, to finish out this first term, uh, what can businesses, employers expect, at least on the federal level, again, from a Biden administration uh, initiative agenda in 2023? What do you, what do you think they're going to see this year? Well, I think less legislating, but still legislating. Um, as I alluded to earlier, there are some must pass bills like uh, federal aviation administration reauthorization and an agriculture bill. There's some must-pass bills, appropriations, although, uh, you know, there's the potential for Congress to kind of punt on that. Obviously, the, the debt ceiling is something that lots of folks are talking about. My view is we know how that movie's going to end. It'll potentially be a little bit painful to get there, but we're not going to default U.S. government cannot afford to default. We're not going to default. Um, so I, I think they'll find a way to work together. I mean, these folks on the fringes are going to continue to try to hold their parties hostage, but I think they'll find a way to get there. There are all sorts of procedural maneuvers they can use, and I think there will be some legislating. And look, you're, you got a president that served in Congress forever, and he was a United States senator for 40 years, vice president, like he knows how to cut deals. Mitch McConnell knows how to cut deals. They're not looking to do each other any favors. Kevin McCarthy will cut deals. He's got to be careful with his right flank, but Congress is going to cut deals. Certainly the House is going to spend more time on oversight than legislation, but things, things will get done. They'll just get done below the level of the headlines. So let's play a little Nostradamus uh, to end this session. Uh, you stole my thunder a little bit at the beginning of this when you said uh, that you do think President Biden will run for re-election. Uh, are you reaffirming that? Yeah. I mean, he just way overperformed in the midterms. And so how do you, unless he is truly, unless he's unable to get on stage and give a speech, uh, it's obviously not his forte. He's yes, he is eighty years old. He's the oldest president in history. You know, it presents challenges for him, but I just I don't see incumbency is a huge advantage, and I don't see how you walk away from that as long as you can do it. Uh, that that's my view. If the midterm result had been different, I might have a different view, but I think the base case has to be that he's on, he's on the ballot and look, I mean, he was the most moderate Democrat who ran in 2020 and he came out ahead. So, you know, I don't know who's on the other side at the end of the day, but I was going to get there in a yeah. minute. Uh, I mean, does, does, is the democratic party united uh, in terms of president Biden? Are there up and coming uh, individuals on the Democratic side that, if not 2024, we may uh, hear a lot of noise from in, in future elections? I think the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is loud. They make a lot of noise. 
They'll continue to make noise. They'll make Biden's life difficult. They may run somebody against him. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, with it having overperformed electorally with the country, I think in a, in a decent place. I mean, the economy, I think everybody was doom and gloom kind of mid last year. We're not in a recession yet, or if we're in one, it's, it's, it's mild and, and certainly the data doesn't show that we're in one. So I, everybody has jobs still. Inflation's abating somewhat and everybody who wants a job can find one generally. I, I think that's a, any president, any president would take that at this point in their term. So that's President Biden in this corner. As we uh, then go to the other corner, I guess the obvious question is, are we really gearing up for the Biden versus Trump sequel? I think we're starting to see some very slight cracks, maybe not so slight in the Republican Party. But there's no way that Trump doesn't run again in 2024, is there? Uh, No, I mean, he's already running. Um, I, I don't think we know what to expect. Yeah, I don't know what to expect as far as I think there are a, a lot of people that are going to run. I think Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, governor of, of Florida. Uh, I think there are going to be a, a, Chris Christie. I think a significant number of people that that run. I don't I don't know. You know, everybody seems ready to anoint Ron DeSantis. I mean, maybe. But we have no idea how he's going to do on the national stage. He's done, I think he's distinguished himself. People in Florida love him. I think he, I don't know if he got lucky or it was skill and how he navigated COVID down there. But I think people were, people that have been pleased that, that live in Florida. I think they were, they've been pleased and he's super popular. So not to be underestimated. I don't know you know, what happens when they all get up on a stage and debate. I'd like to think, given, I think it's Donald Trump's fault that the Republicans underperformed in November. I think it is squarely on his shoulders. I think people are pissed off and ready to take it out on him. But the MAGA Trumpism kind of philosophy and school of thought is is very much alive and well. And how that all shakes itself out, I I don't know. I don't think it will be Donald Trump. I do think we'll see some generational change. And frankly, I think it's going to be much harder for Joe Biden to beat somebody half his age or almost half his age. Much harder for him to beat that a person with that profile, like a Ron DeSantis, who's in his mid-40s, than it would be to beat Donald Trump. I think the age, that takes the age issue off the table, and I think that's Biden's primary vulnerability. Interesting. And, and just to come back, lastly, on, uh, on the George Santos uh, issue, uh, just read, I think, that uh, he was leaving or is about to be leaving some committees there in Washington. Um, is that really just to placate those of his vocal opponents, or is that the precursor to him potentially leaving Congress altogether? I don't think he's going to leave Congress until he's shown the door. And I think, you know, who knows what's out there as far as grand jury proceedings and criminal investigations. I mean, they're clearly, they are clearly out there. Um, 
you know, I think it's probably ultimately the kind of the cover-ups worse than the crime kind of scenario. If he had campaign vi finance violations or you know, they'll find a way to bring him down, I believe. And when they do, he'll be leaving Congress. But I don't think that happens, you know, tomorrow. And that's the question. I mean, the, do, do people, particularly Republicans in Congress, do they want him out? You know, wh whether it's because they want him out personally or are they afraid of, you know, what fills the seat next? Um, of course, they all want him out personally. As far as like, do they want to be serving with a guy who is a, you know, essentially created a farce out of the institution? Um, but the the margin is so thin that I don't think, you know, I think keeping him there, but keeping him off committees, kind of out of substance. I guess is a is a, is the middle ground they're they're taking. I uh, it's a it's it's not a great situation, and it's it's a no, darn shame. Yeah, and that's a problem. And again, I keep saying this; it doesn't matter to me what side of the aisle you are on for this. I mean, it's it's certainly been a bit of a distraction. Uh, you'd think uh, at a minimum, and it's taking away from uh, at least trying to get some legislation and talk about the real issues, um, regardless of what side you're on. Yeah, look, I. I, I'm definitely, I'm a government guy. I'm an institutionalist, was in government for more than a decade. And I'm not naive to the flaws in government. And, and, and I think government needs a lot of reform and can always be made better. But this is ridiculous. I mean, and look, I, I dealt with fraudsters when I was in government. And the thing about fraudsters is they, it's counterintuitive to people who, are honest. You, they don't hide in the shadows. They get in your face. And it's almost, you almost believe they're real because they're so willing to get in your face. If you were perpetrating a fraud, why wouldn't you, you hide in the shadows? That's not the way the mind of a fraudster works. And it's unbelievable and sad that he was able to get elected and it's a stain on the institution. It'll ultimately be resolved. I think Republicans aren't going to let it hold them back. I, th I do think he's making common cause with some of the some of the far right members who are just looking for attention, and that's that's troubling. But it'll all eventually work itself out, I hope. But it's sad. Yeah, as it usually does. Um, your insight uh, on all these things is, is so appreciative, appreciated. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, last but certainly not least, of course. You are also involved, as I touched on before, in your own regular podcast series. Where do people find it if they want to listen to it? Of course, after they're done listening to my podcast. Of course, employment law now always comes first. <laughs> oh, we do, we do have dueling uh, all firm emails. So. Uh, you don't have a jingle though. I no, I have like a dark theme. Yeah, it's intro. I mean it's scary. Uh, I don't know what it is, but you need a you need a jingle. Yeah, belt the Beltway briefing. Mike is uh, we've done hundreds of episodes over the last five, six years. We have a lot of fun with it. It's we try to it's bipartisan. We try to we disagree, but we do it respectfully. We try to keep politics light and, and real and, and shed some light on what's going on in the district of confusion and um, beltway briefing. It's on all the major, major uh, platforms. 
That's awesome. Um, Howard Schweitzer, Cozen O'Connor, Public Strategies, a uh, great colleague and a great friend of mine here at Cozen O'Connor. Happy anniversary. Thank you for making this uh, annual event an event. Mike, thank you. Happy anniversary. Keep up the great work. You do a great job and are a great friend and look forward to being back next year. Much appreciated. Thanks, Howard. That was terrific as usual. I'm so appreciative for you, Howard. And again, I'm so appreciative for all of you listening to this and the other episodes of Employment Law Now. Well, time to start a new year, and I look forward to next year celebrating another anniversary, hopefully. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.